Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. I hope you all are having a nice start to fall so far. I know I sure am. And at the time we're recording this, the leaves are just starting to change here in Maine. So I imagine by the time this episode comes out on October 14th, we will be right in the thick of leaf peeping season. And I'm also so excited for you all to meet my guest today. He is someone that I've wanted to have on the show, honestly, since it started nearly four years ago, but um, I just couldn't get him to return my phone calls for the life of me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, This is totally on me because I just asked him like a few weeks ago to do this. Uh, But Will Parson is a dear friend. He is someone that I deeply admire, which is really saying something coming from me because we used to spend a lot of time together, like a lot, a lot. Because when I worked for the Chesapeake Bay program, we were roommates for a period of time and co-workers on the Bay program's communications team. So I think a true tell of someone's character or maybe um, a sign that you have a solid friendship is to spend an extreme and prolonged amount of time with someone and if you still like each other you really should be all set so in addition to being a friend will is the multimedia manager for the alliance for the chesapeake bay serving at the chesapeake bay program where he produces photo and video stories he is an incredibly talented photographer and videographer and definitely someone that i cite as an inspiration for my own photography journey so, Will, welcome to the show. It is so gr- just so great to be here with you. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much, Jenna. Um, I, I really appreciate you reaching out to give me this opportunity, and uh, I hope it dis- don't disappoint. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I said all of those nice things about you, <laughs> and <laughs> then you were like, oh, this is really awkward. You you mean to tell me that this isn't the roast of Jenna Valente? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so yeah. I would love for listeners to get to know you better. Will you walk us down your life path a little bit and fill us in on some of the key moments that sort of led you to the place where our paths crossed in Annapolis? Yeah. So I, I think growing up in California as you, this, you know, a member of a, a very large cattle ranching family. I think that was, um, yeah, I think that has its influences in, um, feeling a connection to the land. Um, so I left California for, um, grad school, uh, about a dozen years ago, went to Ohio university school of visual communication, uh, a, you know, one of the top, uh, classic photojournalism programs, in the country. Um, and at that point, you know, this was post 2008, uh, journalism or at least newspapers had sort of bottomed out. Uh, I, I should back up and say after my undergrad, I I actually graduated in 2008. Um, I I made a go of it as a freelance photographer, despite having a, a degree in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, I didn't want to be stuck in a, 
a lab and I had worked at the school newspaper. So I made a go of freelancing as a photographer, did some writing uh, to supplement that. And uh, the decision to go back to grad school was one that I'm very glad that I made. Uh, and it, it came because, you know, times, times are tough and I needed a, a jump start to my career. Um, you know, the, the type of freelancing gigs that I was getting, um, they, you know, were more like event photography and kind of basic stuff. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do more, uh, complex storytelling and, uh, work on bigger stories and, and also just connect with, um, other journalists. So I went back to grad school and, um, it was there that I learned, um, more skills on the video side. Um, but it was also a place where I was able to, you know, gradually start bringing my, my science background back into the types of stories that I was doing. And there, there was a little bit of that even before grad school, um, with, uh, where I was in San Diego. Um, but really is in Ohio that, um, I hit a turning point as far as finding stories locally that, uh, introduced me to the ideas of, you know, like watershed restoration and how water connects us and, you know, it's important to, to not just wildlife, but also to people and culture and, um, all that business. So, um, after grad school, I got a series of newspaper internships where, you know, besides general reporting, I was, I was still pursuing those environmental stories, uh, whether it was a, a photo essay on a watershed up in New Hampshire, where I was interning, um, or some odd, uh, stories about, uh, what in particular that comes to mind is, was on a volunteer at a Audubon center, also up in New Hampshire, where I was, I was at the Concord monitor at the time. Uh, it was an individual who had his own, um, personal encounter with a, a, a wild animal, a, a peregrine falcon that kind of turned his life around. And, um, he was outdoors in the first place, sort of as, you know, it, he, he was doing it for his son, but also for himself because he was dealing with issues from serving in the, the first Persian Gulf war, um, where he suffered a traumatic brain injury and, um, had other health issues that he was slowly, still slowly recovering from and dealing with. Um, and he, he saw this bird and, um, decided to volunteer at the local Audubon center. And so, you know, caring for these birds was a way to care for himself and they kind of rehabilitate each other. Um, and I'd say that, that story was a turning point because, uh, it, it kind of showed me a, a model to follow as far as, um, you know, finding deeply personal stories that, uh, touch on larger issues and, um, show an audience, uh, a path that they could take, you know, in their own lives. Like, you know, everybody can volunteer, everybody can find, uh, something that they care about in the, the natural world that they can find, uh, uh, energy from. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, just on that thread of how drawn you were to that moment where you, you see somebody and you 
have a moment to learn about their story with their connection to nature and how that impacted their lives. And something that I think, you know, I think very fondly of when I reminisce on my time living down in Annapolis is our group of friends. Um, and it's probably just the nature of being friends with a bunch of people that work in the environmental field, but we spent so much time outdoors together. Um, so I'm just wondering if like, do you have a certain activities that you like to do or favorite places that are like really special to you? Um, like how do you like to connect with nature? So I like to garden. Um, that's been my, my passion as of late, um, you know, the past few years, uh, since I, it was actually on a story that I learned how to first, uh, start milkweed seeds. Um, cause I, I'd, I'd never really, I'd, I'd grown vegetables in the garden as a kid, but, um, never had experience with wildflowers or native plants or, um, the complexities of starting perennials, which, uh, you know, in, in the natural world, they need to overwinter before they actually germinate. And so I, I was on a story at, uh, Masonville Cove environmental education center in Baltimore. This was 2015. So I was, I was on the job at the Chesapeake Bay program. Uh, and, uh, there was a master naturalist there who was, helping, helping them, uh, start milkweed seeds in, in seed trays. And these, these milkweed seeds had spent the winter, the entire winter in the fridge in a Ziploc bag. Um, and they gave me a bag of seeds to take home, which I promptly, uh, threw aside and left alone for a few days and then came back three, three days later and saw them starting to sprout just in the Ziploc bag. And I said, Oh, you know, I'd better put these in put these somewhere. So I, I started, uh, my first milkweed plants that, that spring. Was this when we lived together? So I left in 2015 and I have memories in our house. You definitely started stuff from seed, but I can't remember if it was herbs or if it was the milkweed. I think it was milkweed and maybe some, uh, some pepper plants. Oh, that's what it was. Peppers. Yeah. Yes. And we, we had, uh, yeah, an enclosed, patio with just enough light that, uh, the, they did okay. And, um, I, I think I, I can't remember if they survived or if I, I tried transplanting them, I think, but it was too late in the season, but I, I took the lesson that I learned from that master naturalist who coincidentally I connected with recently. Uh, she sells uh, native plants locally. So she's one of my native nice. plant sources. Um, <laughs> your native plant dealer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I, I took what I learned from that, which was, you know, it's super easy to stick some seeds in a Ziploc bag and three months later you can pull them out and grow some plants. And the, the same principle applies to a, a number of things. So I, I, the next year I was doing milkweed, but also, you know, I bought some, some butterfly milkweed, a different species at the, just at the nursery or the grocery store and uh, pop those in the fridge. And I might've done a, a little more uh, milkweed collecting at a local park. And uh, 
whether or not that was allowed. I'm not sure, but <laughs> those milkweeds. We, well, we won't tell on you, but you might have just told it, told on yourself. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> we, I won't, we won't say what park it is. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't name the park. But the, those those milkweeds from that park, uh, they're still going strong, and they've spawned uh, a whole a whole range of gardens from people who have uh, sampled from those milkweed plants, which, which grow at the headquarters of the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so then the, the like wild milkweed that you harvested yeah. is doing better than the ones that you've bought from the store. Uh, the ones I bought from the store are, are also fine. They're, they're just a different species. So that's the oh, butterfly okay. milkweed. Like you, oh, okay. you, the deal is you usually can't get common milkweed in a seed packet. Oh, um, it's, I didn't it's, know this. It's just a little harder because pe- it's not a, an attractive plant to most people. And a, it's not really a typical gardening plant because it grows eight feet tall and <laughs> uh, spreads by rhizomes. So it takes over. <laughs> but, but, but it's but butter- an important plant. But it, yes, it's very important. Monarchs love it. Um, it's their preferred plant, even though they, they'll, their caterpillars will feed on a number of milkweeds. Um, but a good compromise is butterfly milkweed, which you can get in a seed packet, or if you really want, you can find, uh, your local ecotype. If you don't want, you know, genetics from halfway across the country. This is milkweed adjacent, but did, was it this year? Did you do, I'm like, hopefully I'm not making this up in my head, but did you do a time-lapse of monarchs? emerging from their little chrysalis i i might have done a uh, a video clip or or something but what a, a couple years ago i had some mon- some milkweed growing in my community garden plot that i i clipped because it, there was too much of it um but i had forgotten to look for eggs and lo and behold there were like a dozen monarch eggs on this milkweed stock that I'd just cut. So I, I took them home and fed, fed the caterpillars and we had about a dozen caterpillars in a, you know, makeshift habitat in a. I think that's what I'm thinking of is that. And then, so anybody we'll get to this, we'll have, we'll share like where to follow along on Instagram, but um, that, and then like the baby birds, I feel like you, Will's always posting really great stuff either on like his page or the Bay Programs page. So, yeah, um, I might have yeah. done a, a live <laughs> a live feed of the the baby uh, um, Carolina wrens that were nesting in a converted. There's I actually what happened was I I had a uh, I'd gotten a camera trap uh, like a motion detecting camera trap and I was testing it out on the bird feeder on my apartment balcony. Um, and a Carolina wren had started building a nest inside the housing for the camera. It, you know, not cooperating at all, but, um, <laughs> but it was so cute. Yeah. And it, if you know, <laughs> if you know a Carolina wren nest, it's, you know, they stuff a bunch of leaves in a old shoe or whatever you leave lying around. Um, so I, I took the leaves out. I put them in a Amazon cardboard box and had left them on the same shelf and the, the Carolina Wren took to it thankfully and, and built a nest and 
Renz ended up using it for a, a couple of years. So by the time that I, I did some filming of them, they, it was probably like three or four generations of Renz living out of this Amazon box. Yeah. And like kind of a success story for an Amazon box. <laughs> out of all the Amazon boxes, that one provided a home for something else. And Amazon's good for something. <laughs> and this show is sponsored by Amazon. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, the, well, because we're talking about wait, what were you going to say? There, there, there's an epilogue to the Amazon box, and that oh. once, once the wrens were done with it, um, a colony of bumblebees moved in. <gasps> no way! That's yeah. so cool. And there's there was a community science uh, effort somewhere that was asking people to report bees in bird nests. Bird nests. So I reported it to them. This is like the most interesting box of all time. This makes me feel like somebody out there should start a podcast about boxes. And every episode is just a different story of a box. Uh huh. Um, well, anyway, uh, because <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to segue from that. <laughs> So we're just going to do a hard pivot uh, because we are talking about wildlife. I happen to know that you have a, um, a kind of a deep interest in love for a specific species. I'm wondering if you'll bring it up on your own. Um, but do you have a favorite species of wildlife or a favorite animal? I think my favorite species of wildlife it varies, but consistently it's been the, the Eastern Hellbender. That's, yeah, it's okay. I was like, that's please what I say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, will you share why you like it? Because I'm sure a lot of people are, I mean, one, it has a really cool name. Yeah. Uh, but also I feel like a lot of people might not be familiar with it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say is that a lot of people don't know what they are. And, and that's, that's part of the appeal. Um, I I like rooting for an underdog, and the, the the Hellbender is definitely an underdog, with a very with a very cool name, and you know it's it's full of superlatives because it's you know North America's largest salamander, third largest in the world. It's also um, one of the rarest, unfortunately, because it just needs the cleanest water to survive, and we don't have a whole lot of that to go around, unfortunately. So there's maybe some in Maryland. Uh, I know there's some in New York uh, and, and, and Pennsylvania. Um, I haven't seen one in the wild yet, but that that's on my bucket list. But Oh, what an amazing day. I hope that happens for you. Yeah. And Do I'm they, like, I probably won't be there, but that would be really amazing just to see how excited <laughs> you uh, would be to, to see something like that. Yeah, I'm sure you can imagine. But the the hellbender, I'd say that you know the the monarch and the milkweed was one you know wildlife turning point. But the the hellbender was one of the earlier ones, maybe not the first one. Um, the first one probably goes back to California. But uh, when I went, what actually when I was preparing to go to grad school in Ohio, you know, I was, I was born and raised in California, so I didn't really know what kind of stories I was going to find there. But one of the first things I found was that um, it was hellbender country, but that hellbenders were threatened by 
among other things, the the legacy of uh, coal mining in you know this is Appalachia, this is Southeast Ohio, Athens, Ohio. Um, but they were they were hanging on, and people were working to restore streams, you know, not just for hellbenders, but just for wildlife and people in general, because they they were very literally dead streams, you know, clear crystal clear water because nothing was living in them, but um, this you know very surreal bright orange rust layering the the substrate underneath the water because you know the what happens is the the water goes through a underground abandoned mine you know these are mine coal mines that um were worked before laws and regulations went into effect in the 1970s that required coal companies to um you know, take care of the mines after they were done with them. So there were a lot of abandoned mines and there, there's still a lot of abandoned mines that um, fill up with groundwater and that groundwater uh, leaches out uh, minerals from, from underground um, and becomes very acidic. And then once that water hits the surface, uh, a lot of that uh, dissolved iron precipitates out uh, as the water uh, goes back up to more, more of a neutral, but not, you know, still acidic, um, pH. So you end up with all this rust and it, it's not hospitable to life at any level. And, uh, hellbenders, you know, as a creature, they, it, it spawns some of their names like lasagna lizard, but they breathe through their skin, uh, through these, you know, ridiculous flaps that, uh, bunch up on either side of them. And so they, you know, they breathe through the skin and they're, they, they just can't survive. So when I was a student there, I, I did a, a series on acid mine drainage and I, I managed, you know, not a wildlife, a wild hellbender, but a one, a specimen that was one of the last that was collected in that part of Ohio in the 1960s, I think. And it was this huge, you know, two and a half foot long specimen kept in a, a metal locker full of ethanol two and a half feet long i don't feel like i mean i obviously have known you for quite a while and i'm aware that you really love these creatures but i like and we've talked about them before but i don't think i've realized that they were that big yeah might be that's amazing might be two two and a half feet is the max but um a lot of those imagine? tails. So. <laughs> I know, but seeing a salamander that's that big, that yeah. would be a treat for yeah. sure. So unfortunately, this one was very dead and had been dead for a long time, but it was still a magical experience. And it, it was then that I learned that, you know, they that specimen was probably decades old. So they live for they live for decades. It might have been 40, 50 years old. I'm not sure the the lifespan exactly but um you know they they stopped living there as adults or you know for for a long time they were only catching adults because they weren't reproducing because the larvae were more you know more sensitive um and you know is straightening the river and you know sediment from agriculture and land use um did them in like it's done in other places um so that was 
you know, like I said, a turning point and, um, wherever I've gone since then, I've tried to find, you know, a chance to see hellbenders and, uh, managed to see them up in New York for a story for the Chesapeake Bay program. They weren't, they weren't wild though. They would be wild eventually. Cause it was, a an effort by, um, a group called the wetland trust who, uh, raise they've their first batch they raised, I think a hundred hellbenders of this was several years ago. And I think they've raised more since then. Raised a hundred hellbenders in captivity and, and re- released them in the, you know, this is the Susquehanna watershed that eventually feeds the Chesapeake. That's but. great. So I feel like I'm sitting here, my like heart hurts hearing all about this habit, habitat degradation. Um, and I think a really... Uh, thing that something that I feel really fortunate for is having this show and being able to talk to people like yourself that are doing really amazing work. And I think something that's really fascinating is um, just thinking about like, you know, when you say the word like healthy ocean or watershed or environment, that could mean a lot of different things to different people. And it could look in somebody's mind's eye, like in many different ways. So I'm wondering, like when you hear that, like healthy environment, um, maybe in the context of like the work that you do now, like healthy Chesapeake Bay, like what does that look like to you? And what does that mean? For me, it looks like um, people being able to uh, you know, find their happiness and a connection to, to their Chesapeake or their watershed or their environment, um, in in the way that they see meaningful to them as an individual. And so, you know, it could be an economic interest, you know, a livelihood, it could be recreation. Um, though the one thing I don't see is successful is, uh, you know, a, a natural world that's apart and separate, even if it's, you know, protected in theory, um, I would argue that it's, it's less protected if, if people are distant from, from, uh, from the outdoors. Um, I also think of resilience, knowing that the, the places that we care about are going to change. And so, uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it's important to make sure there are ways that our, you know, the, the places that we care about um, can change and still retain uh, value. Um, yeah, not necessarily the the same meaning to every generation, but at least uh, something carried over and something new to add, add on to it. Yeah, like the ability to make meaningful connections with places. I think that's super important for sure. So, and if, if I can go on a tangent. Go uh, for it. <laughs> so, you know, the, going back to growing up in California, my, my family's cattle ranch was on you know, a, a mixture of private and public land in, in Central California, a place called uh, Carrizo Plain. And... Yeah, you know, I think of the the connection that my family 
was able to make it, you know, in the course of barely two generations. So about 50 years, um, to this, this piece of land and that, that relationship has changed. Um, my family doesn't ranch the, you know, exactly the same piece of land It's, it's actually now a national monument, but I, I s- still see, you know, glimpses of that relationship, even though it's in a different form. So, it, you know, it went from an economic to a more like, you know, place you can camp and recreate, but um, for me, the the land is still there. There's still a chance to have a relationship with it. Um, so I, I see that as a success. Some people in my family might disagree, uh, but it's a Carrizo Plain National Monument. Is you know uh, one of those darn Democrats, Bill Clinton. <laughs> always, always making national monuments. <laughs> I feel like I could see that as a like a T-shirt. <laughs> darn democrat yeah you know i think the beautiful thing about monuments um not to get into like too much of a political discussion but uh like thinking about the monuments from from the way that we approach it on like the ocean side the largest marine national monument that we have in the country was actually established by george bush w um so it's it's a fairly bipartisan thing, or it was up until um, you know the the times that we're in now, where everything is so uh, politicized and polarized. But um, I I think I kind of view monuments as a fairly fairly successful bipartisan story for most of most of their existence. <laughs> we'll see what happens going forward. Um, yeah, but I, you know I'd um I'm interested in hearing more about I guess just your connection to storytelling so um thinking about all these different mediums with writing videography photography um what is it about storytelling that drew you in is that something like I mean as a kid I know you probably weren't like you know pretend maybe you were pretending to be a journalist or whatever but like is that something that you feel like was always there for you or was there a moment for you that was like a light bulb went on and you were like, I love, I love doing this. I know you said you worked for your school paper in high school. What was that? It, it was, uh, I guess I worked at the school newspaper in high school, but I, I mostly drew uh, the cartoons very, very poorly <laughs> oh my for, God. for extra credit. I want to see those. Do you still have those? Um, they they might still exist. My I know I definitely have my college tear sheets, but um, yeah. Uh, so I don't think I was born a journalist, even though I did. You know, I I read the comics a lot um, growing up, and I you know I. I was an avid reader. I, I read at an early age and kept on going. Um, but my, you know, I, I came from a, a family that didn't ask a whole lot of questions. Like we, um, you know, tend to leave people to their, their own business. And, and as a journalist, you know, you're, you're asking personal questions, um, often. I'm like, and here I am just asking you so many questions, Uh (laughs) but that's okay. Um, You know me. I feel like if, 
you can tolerate me for this long right. then this is not that yeah. <laughs> out of the blue. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's the, the fact that it didn't come natural naturally to me was part of the appeal. Um, definitely early on when I was learning photography, um, in high school, I took pictures mainly because I'd go to parties with my friends and I didn't have a beer in my hand and the camera was something that I could use to still relate to my friends. Um, so I was, you know, taking a lot of candids, um, you know, documenting. I life. feel like that carried on through uh-huh. our time in Annapolis. Right. <laughs> like, definitely. We're still that guy at parties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I probably still need to, share those photos with the people who who are in them oh definitely you probably have so many photos of me and our friends that we've never mm-hmm. seen it it's on my list don't worry i'll, I'll get to it <laughs> they will find us when they are meant yeah, to the nice thing about photos is that they they last a good while yes, if you take care totally. of them um anyway i uh, i saw photography as a way you know, as I got into college, I, I saw it as a way to, you know, explore and have an excuse to, to learn things and be places that I wouldn't normally be. So it's kind of my ticket in that sense. And so working at the school newspaper, you know, you, you, you pay for that experience by, you know, cranking out stories. Um, so that's, that's the, the trade off is like, you know, I, I get to, see things firsthand, but, um, I, I, you know, my responsibility is to, to share that experience. And I, I see, you know, you know, I, I just enjoy the work of creating shared experiences. Cause I, I think that helps bring people together and, and stories also, you know, humanize people who, um, are strangers to us otherwise. And so I, I see value in that and, um, Yeah, uh, I I think it still is a way for me to you know, explore new thing things that are new to me. So that hasn't gone away, but I I do carry the camera around less and and try to find other ways to uh, you know continue growing because I you know I, I do think with a camera in your hand you you reach a plateau every now and then. So at the top of the show, I introduced you to listeners as the multimedia manager for the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay, serving at the Chesapeake Bay program, which is a mouthful. Will you explain what that means and talk a little bit more about what the Alliance and the Bay program do? Sure. So the Chesapeake Bay program I, my favorite way that it's been described is a coworker called it the potluck of the Chesapeake Bay restoration effort. So everybody's, <laughs> everybody's bringing a little something to the table Which um, for the is funny too, because at least when I worked there, we had a lot of potlucks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but that's a great description. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a partnership, uh, and our, immediate office is, you know, 90, 200 something people, depending on how you count, um, you know, experts from 
federal agencies, uh, EPA, USGS, um, NOAA is a partner, um, and then academic institutions, University of Maryland, Center for Environmental Science, among them, and then nonprofit partners like the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay, which does you know the communications and uh, um, other parts of the Bay program. Uh, the Alliance, you know, as as one sliver of the Bay program, they they do a range of things outside of you know their Bay program duties. So they they're the on on the ground uh, nonprofit doing restoration across a variety of areas. So agriculture, forests, green infrastructure, and then the Bay program fits into the, the stewardship and engagement work that they do. Yeah. And how about your specific role there? What do you do? So I work in the communications office at the Bay program. And in my role, I, you know, in the big picture, I'm telling stories that make people care about their relationship to the environment and the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So I do that using combination of uh, mainly photography and writing, uh, also video, or you know sometimes photo, video, and writing, and um, sometimes other things like talking to old friends on podcasts. <laughs> Will you walk me through? your process a little bit. And I guess it's not necessarily me because I've literally been in this process, but like for listeners that are sitting here wondering, like how does something go from being an idea to being a finished feature story or video or photo essay? Like what, what does that look like in, um, as part of the communications team at the Bay program? Sure. So we definitely get a lot of topics that need a lot of work to become stories. And, and it also takes a lot of work to, to explain to people what, what the difference is between you know, a, a topic like oysters and you know, a story that is more focused and has a question behind it that theoretically your, your audience is going to be interested enough to stick around to hear the answer to. Um, I, I think at, at a basic level, I, I'm doing what I've I've done for a long time, which is seeking out uh, individuals with you know a, a relatable, um, very you know a personal story to tell, who um, who is is you know willing to trust us to to share their story. Um, and I think I'm drawn to stories that, um, by, by presenting somebody's story, it, it shows the people reading that story, you know, a, a path that they can take in their own life. So it's, it's those people who are on the forefront of, of something important who have maybe, had to go through some of the problem solving on their own because you know they're they're just that couple steps ahead of everybody else in terms of like you know planting a rain garden in their yard or um, you know volunteering to help a species they care about or or this or that. Um, so you know, I'm drawn to people who've uh, 
solved a problem and and can show people you know something that might not have occurred to people um, in their own lives. Uh, also drawn to people who straddle communities, who can uh, you know introduce one uh, you know one community to another. So you know I I think. I mentioned that uh, that individual up in New Hampshire who you know is a military veteran, but also a a bird of prey rehabilitator. Um, you know, he he straddled communities and um, cha- you know, in a way, challenge challenged preconceptions of of what you know a, a steward might look like. Um, so when you find people like that, I think you're naturally going to find stories that are you know, new and topical and of interest, and um, you know have have some sense of drama to them, which I think is important. Where you know there's there's that lingering question that hooks people and makes them wait until you you answer that question. And on 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 that path, you might pick up a few other important facts along the way might not have known. Yeah. And, you know, while, while I'm listening to you, I am hearing so many similarities between, you know, what we did on the communications team and sort of what I'm doing here with the podcast. And that, I mean, it's not surprising because I got so much joy from the work that we would do together to do just that, to go out and find people that are offering solutions to these really seemingly sometimes like too large problems and then amplifying them and uplifting them. And um, so I really, I feel like I have to give like so much credit to my time at the Bay program for um, everything that's sort of come after that. And even all the way down to learning how to interview people, you know, like we'd go out in the field and you'd have the, your camera and be videoing and I'd have our, like our little recorder and, um, just trying to like grow as a, as, as, um, a storyteller. And that is really the first that, I don't know. I just feel like that was such a formative time for me in a period of major growth, like even down to those were some of my first experiences ever hearing my voice on a recorder and realizing like, oh, I say like a lot or I say um a lot or <laughs> I have this inflection that goes up at the end of every sentence. And and now like look at where I am. I just think it's, um, it's funny when you look in, at like hindsight, these really um, – you know, at the time it was the job I had and I loved doing it, but I don't know if I necessarily realized how um, central and important those years would be to where I am now. Um, and I feel like you're largely to thank for that too. Like you were such a great coworker for that. But um, I just think that there's so many similarities there of, of, like hearing you talk about what's what makes a good story and what you look for. And I'm just like nodding along like, oh, yeah, like, you know, the Bay program is still with me. <laughs> I just do it now over like a microphone and uh, telling stories in a different way. But it's it's good work and it's important work for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, you know, are there any stories that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about? So the one that comes to mind is one that I, I just finished and, you know, might be a cop out, but you know, you're never done with a story. If you think about it, um, the technically, yes, it is a finished, completed, done story. Um, but I, I do want to follow up on it. It's, um, it began as more of a photo essay, but, uh, ended up having a, a longer written component. And, um, it, it's a, a story on Hopewell, Virginia, and it's, relationship, longstanding relationship with the, the James and Appomattox rivers and how it's, um, experiencing a, a renewal that began with, uh, the, the return of its environmental health and is, is, you know, on its way towards community health. So the, the story in a nutshell is that Hopewell, Virginia has this, this lingering, unfortunately lingering reputation as, um, uh, environmental, this, this home of a, you know, one of the worst environmental disasters that made national headlines in the 1970s when it was revealed that, uh, toxic pesticide called Kipone had been getting dumped straight into the James river for a number of years. And, um, was making people sick in the factory where it was being produced and led to the complete shutdown of the James, the James River, the lower James River commercial fishery for a number of years after that. Um, so Hopewell went from being proudly known as the chemical capital of the South, where it was, it was also called the wonder city for how fast it sprung up after DuPont started making uh, chemicals or, uh, you know, um, explosives there for the war effort during world war one. Um, this, you know, local industry went from something that they were proud of to an object of ridicule, not just at the local level, but you know, nationally. And, um, at the same time, uh, the clean water act was passed and just before Kipone hit national headlines and that really set the stage for just this long, slow climb out of, um, out of this environmental low point that Hopewell experienced in the seventies. So, you know, the, the James river stopped being a dumping ground for all sorts of things. They, they built a wastewater treatment plant that could handle not just the residential waste, but, uh, it, it also treats the, a lot of the main industries that, that are still located in Hopewell. So it's one this huge plant that, you know, there's only a handful of them in the country. And over the decades, the, the, the river's health improved, keep own, um, stopped being an issue, even though it's, it's probably buried in the sediment still, but, uh, it's, it's degrading and it's, uh, projected to not be detectable in fish at all in the, in the near future. But it, it you know, it's, it's been the, the commercial fishery opened several years after the, the keypone spill became a thing, but, um, there was this lag time between the river recovering and people, uh, shifting that perception and, uh, locally, um, 
people having access to the river. So that's been something that locals have worked on in, in the past decade or so to improve access, um, reconnect people to the river um, with the goal of, you know, economic uplift. Uh, you know, pe- the downtown is within walking distance of the, the main park where today there's actually a huge uh, boardwalk called the river walk that spans, um, you know, half, it feels like half the stretch of the city uh, and eventually it's going to be doubled in size uh, in the next couple of years um, and create this great pedestrian walkway that, you know, connects one side of the city to the other. Um, so people are, are getting reconnected to the river and at the same time uh, people are working on addressing, you know, issues of, of equity um, as is put to me by a, a, a local council member, you know, one side of the city lives 10 years longer than the other. And that's kind of the issue that um, they're working to address. And so environmental health is, is just one piece of the, the bigger picture in terms of like, you know, addressing uh, income inequality, access to healthcare, uh, addressing food deserts, um, a, a range of things. But um, for the, the story I focused on was, a, you know, that, that story of recovery and um, hopefully, you know, painting a painting a different picture of of hopewell you know for me as a newcomer you know i i never i never got the the whiff of of what hopewell smelled like back in the day like it's you know there were taunts from that people made up because it it smelled so bad but you know that's that's not the hopewell that i visited and actually if you know talked to other people who moved there in the last few years and were drawn there because of its environmental appeal and so you know I think it takes time to, for those perceptions to fade, but um, it doesn't hurt to try to help. Totally. Move that yeah. So that, that story is done. Is it out yet or? Yes, it is. Okay. You can, you can find it on chesapeakebay.net. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to reading that probably right when we're done recording. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I feel like so much of this conversation is a big like walk down memory lane for me. And I earlier today when I was uh, preparing to chat with you, I was sort of thinking about some of the moments that stuck with me, some of like the stories that stuck with me from my time at the Bay program that we worked on together Um so like the Harriet Tubman scenic byway photo essay that we did, I thought that that was such a powerful um, experience and really moving experience where we got to go visit all of these sites along the trail and listen to um, the history along the way. And I mean, you also took one of the coolest time-lapse photos of the stars that I feel like I've ever seen even now. Um, and then the Crow's Nest Natural Area Preserve in Virginia, which like in hindsight, it doesn't really seem like it was that big of a story, but I remember it because it was this incredibly cold day that we were out there. Like even coming from someone that grew up in Maine and lives in Maine now, it was like frigid. And um, I, I know you've mentioned a couple, but I wonder if there are like, are there certain stories from your time at the Alliance or the Bay Program that really stick with you or stand out in your mind as like, just when I've asked you that question that like pop into your head. 
uh, well, when you mentioned Harriet Tubman, uh, I was just thinking how, you know, I was, I was joking before about how a story is never done, but um, I have returned to Harriet Tubman topics a number of times. And um, it's just, it's, it's always fun to, to learn how much of a badass she was um, without getting into it. But I, I did just come from a, uh, a tree planting in Delaware that's on a Harriet Tubman underground railroad site so, or um, Harriet Tubman underground railroad byway site. So this is a, a drive driving experience where you can stop and, you know, f from Maryland's Eastern shore to Philadelphia, I think um, different sites of historical importance to the underground railroad and to Harriet Tubman personally, which, you know, obviously, you know, from the story that we worked on, but um, this, this site was a state forest that uh, she might've, used um as she was helping people travel north um and the this event was great because it you know it was not just a tree planting to help the local stream which was a tributary of the chester river which flows into the chesapeake bay but uh the forester the it's delaware's urban and community forester um woman named keisha bronskill uh she she put this event together uh, in conjunction with a series of hikes at the state forest uh, with a historical interpreter. So it was um, a way not just to plant trees, but to get people out into the forest and to get people into the, the state forest that wouldn't, um, might be newcomers. So there was um, an interest in getting people of color, uh, specifically from local communities involved and um, it, it seemed like a smashing success. They had like over 150 people and the, the folks that I talked to, uh, a lot of them were, uh, first time tree planters. That's amazing. I think, um, you know, I think that the work that, you know, we did or that you all are still doing through the communications team at the Bay program in uh, telling stories of people that are out there doing great work around the Bay and important work around the Bay is incredibly important because as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, it sort of humanizes some of these, these issues that we, we might see that's like, oh, climate change or water quality or deforestation. Like what is, what does that mean? What does that look like on the ground? And then uh, you all, and when I was there, we all had the tools and the opportunity to go out and illustrate that and show that and not just tell it from our words and our experience, but be able to share the experiences of people that are living it every single day. And um, I mean, I think that was a huge honor for me and it still is to be able to serve in some sort of capacity where I'm, I'm doing that on this podcast and through the work that we do through the Healthy Ocean Coalition. But um, I'm curious to hear some of your perspective on just like what the power of storytelling is and how um, storytelling can really tie into larger efforts to protect and restore the environment or the Chesapeake Bay. In terms of the, the power of storytelling, I always think of how people are just wired to learn from stories. And so if you're trying to um, inspire 
you know, inspire positive action or even just in a general level, you know, challenge preconceptions that need to be challenged. Um, you know, that's, that's the way you plug into people's minds is, is through storytelling. Um, you know, facts don't cut it. Um, you know, a, a personal story, um, does wonders where, you know, talking about, uh, you know, statistics doesn't quite register. So that's, that's one part of it. Um, I, I also think a lot about the privilege of storytelling and, um, the responsibility that entails, you know, to be faithful to, to people's stories. Uh, and, and so I, I think that consumes a lot of my time and attention is just making sure that I am, you know, faithful and accurate, um, and, you know, respecting the, the trust that it requires to take somebody's, you know, personal story and, um, put it on the internet, um, which is, is always evolving. Um, the, the practice is always evolving. So it's, I think it's important to stay on top of, of how, you know, considerations are changing. Like, you know, 10 years ago would would have worried less about, you know, facial recognition or, um, you know, putting personal information online. Um, and, uh, I, I would have thought less about, you know, making sure the the context of a photograph is is maintained whether that photo appears on you know instagram or story or you know, if, if somebody reuses it for for some other purpose um i i, I do the best i can to uh, make sure that context is 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 there from the get-go and you know in the caption um and that people understand that these are are real people that I'm photographing and, um, they're not, you know, it's not stock photography. It's not, um, you know, just, a a type example. Um, I, I encourage folks to, you know, use people's real names and just to underscore that, like, this is somebody's personal story that, um, is being shared and not just like, a you know, um, stock example of planting a tree or, or this or that. Totally. Or like clickbait just for like Bay program to get more likes or something like that. I think that, um, you know, that was something that it's just what an awesome responsibility and really privilege it is to be trusted by somebody to tell their story. And I think, you know, when I, when I worked at the Bay program, that would be, I think the thing that I, I guess for lack of a better word, like the thing I would like worry about the most or get most nervous about is when I would be finished with a story and I would share it with the person or the people to wait to hear their reaction to see if I really uh, captured, you know, our time together and their perspectives accurately and in a way that felt like really genuine and authentic. And I, you know, I still feel that way with the podcast, but it's almost a little bit easier because it's like you're telling your story, like as told by you, not like it is there, like at the Bay program or with what a lot of journalists do, where you have an experience with someone and then you go and take that and have to interpret it. You put it down onto a, you know, paper on your computer and then share it out to the world. Um, and it's there that's just out there forever now. So I think that I I really appreciate your attention to that. 
Um, and I hope that if there are folks that are listening to this that are maybe aspiring to get into this type of work, um, that you don't take that lightly. Um, it's a huge deal if somebody um, welcomes you into their their world um, and opens up to you and trusts you to to share their story. And it's it's on people like us to get it right. Yeah, that's well said. So speaking of people that might be um, thinking about getting into this type of work or are curious to learn more about, um, you know, what your role and responsibilities look like, I always like to ask people about like the more challenging aspects of your job because, I mean, especially for you, right? Like, what you do is really cool. Like you're super cool. What you do is really cool. But I'm sure there are lots of times that you're like, ugh, like day-to-day stuff. This is annoying. This is a hurdle. This is a barrier. Like what are some of those things that are are challenging about your work? So the main thing that I, I see is not just a challenge, but just a, an impossible to overcome, you know, fact of life is that you know i i'm telling stories from a perspective and that is you know a, a single perspective um and it it matters you know not just who's in, in front of the camera but it matters who's behind the camera so um somebody with a different background um a member of a different community is going to tell a story in a different way. So I, I'm always cognizant of the fact that, you know, I'm just one, one photographer. Um, and there, there are others in, you know, even in the Chesapeake community who, who do similar work, but there, there absolutely need to be more and they, there need to be more from different backgrounds. Um, and I, I'm always cognizant of, you know, it takes, you know, I think uh, not everybody has the the benefit of growing up and having access to a camera in their formative years, um, and you know, so that that's one of you know j- just a number of barriers of entry to to this field that you know, need to be actively um, mitigated. But um, you know, so the you know the way around that fact or that challenge is, is to encourage others you know and and uh, you know offer training and um seek out other storytellers and, and try to create spaces that can be filled by um different people because you know no, no matter what i do like no matter how much training i have i'm i'm for the most part, telling a story as an outsider coming into a community. And it, there's just a fundamental difference between somebody telling a story as an outsider versus somebody telling a story as an insider, uh, as a member of the community. So, uh, you know, if it were up to me, there'd be uh, more organizations. I mean, the, you know, organizations are limited um, a number of ways, but, um, you know, if there were more publications locally, more organizations, nonprofits who were that were able to fund um, positions locally, um, then uh, yeah, 
I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of a, a big vacuum to be filled. Definitely. I'm like what I would give to have a staff photographer, which is also funny because it's like I serve as our staff photographer half the time, which is fine. But like, <laughs> like we need we need more of that. We need. I mean, I'm not going to reiterate what you said because you said it perfectly, but more people with diverse perspectives and lived experiences with a camera in their hand and with the opportunity in the lane to tell their stories. I, I think part of it is, you know, folks taking a chance and in, on, you know, individuals who might be um, up to the task uh, and making that investment and recognizing that it's in a return on there. There's a return on that investment. Um, and, you know, if, if you're on the fence and maybe there's somebody in your organization who's hasn't picked up camera before, but might be willing to learn, uh, I tell folks, you know, access is, is the name of the game. Like it, you know, it le- learning the tools is it, it's, um, it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's, it's a minor piece, uh, compared with, you know, just, uh, being able to recognize a good story and be in the right place at the right time. And, to you know, to have the trust of the people that you're, you're whose story you're telling. Um, so, you know, if, if you have the access, but not the, the means, um, you know, believe it or not, believe it or not, I think you're already most of the way there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that rings true to my own photography journey, not to get like too deep into that, but, um, I had the interest there. I just didn't have the tools for a really long time because cameras are expensive. Um, and you know, I thank Bay pro the Bay program for that too. That was some of my first experience with, uh, a nice, like a nice actual <laughs> camera. Um, and I think that's all it really took to spark that that fire in me that now I have my own and um, just can't get enough of it. But it, it's not something that I ever really thought that I would ever do because I, I didn't think that I would ever be able to afford my own camera. <laughs> um, but so on the, we, so we don't want to focus on the, the challenges throughout the rest of the episode. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, some of the most rewarding aspects of your job and, and what brings you joy. Um. So uh, part of the joy of, of my job is, is being able to, is, is that I have to be outside in order to do my job, even though I'm, I'm not outside most days, people think I'm always traveling, but I'm always for the most part, I'm, I'm hunched <laughs> down in front of a computer like everybody else. Yeah. I'm like, sometimes you have to edit those photos. Yeah. Um, but you know, at, at the start of my journey, I, I knew I wanted a career that, um, you know, that had some physicality to it and put me out in, in the world, um, you know, at a, at a basic level to stay active. And, you know, you know, we, we know the negative health effects of sitting around all the time. So, uh, you know, I saw it as something that was, just at a basic level, a healthy, um, natural thing for the human body to do, <laughs> um, is be outside. And, uh, and the, the extra layer on top of that is, um, the, the intellectual pursuit of <laughs> trying to 
grasp a story in real time. You know, you, you always have a a hint of what the story might be, um, but no, you know, no matter how much you prepare, you you just have to be ready for the the story to change or or you know or to be surprised because if, if you do your job right, you're putting yourself in a position to be surprised. Um, so I think it's just a a healthy way to to make a living and um i think it you know serves a public good in that it ins- inspires other people to to find ways to to do good by themselves in the world yeah and how can people follow along with the work that you're doing or the work that the bay program or the alliance are doing and get in touch if they're interested in learning more or collaborating maybe maybe they have an interesting story in the bay watershed yeah so the you can find more information about the not just the chesapeake bay program but just a great resource on the chesapeake bay and the issues it's facing in general Um, you can find that at www.chesapeakebay.net it's the website of the chesapeake bay program um the website of the alliance for the chesapeake bay uh is alliance for the bay dot org i think well also (laughs) just google alliance for the chesapeake bay i also will say the executive director of the alliance kate fritz has been a guest on this show so um if you want to learn more about the amazing kate and the work that the alliance does um that is a great episode to go back and listen to and i'll add that you can find our Chesapeake Bay program photography on Instagram at Chess Bay program. It's our handle. And if you are a environmental professional, or even if you're not, um, we make our, our archive freely available for, for non-commercial use. And so if you do have a, a use in mind for our archive, you can send a, a note to requests at chesapeakebay.net. Check, go check it out. I also will put a plug in for, um, the Chesapeake Research Consortium has a fellowship program where they station um, uh, fellows at the Chesapeake Bay program. That is uh, how I was able to work there and as part of the communications team. Um, they have several different positions that focus on all different kinds of issues um, around the watershed and around managing the watershed and doing research and policy and all of the things. Um, it is a really, really great program for people to get their foot in the door in the environmental field. So if you're an early career professional or someone that's interested in um, getting into this line of work, check out the Chesapeake Research Consortium's Fellowships of the Bay Program. And um, I always ask this series of questions to my guests. It's become like a little case study for me. (laughs) Well, maybe let's see what you say. (laughs) Um, So we'll start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are facing? I would have to think about a subtopic within just climate change and the the climate crisis um i if i were to you know try to 
look even bigger picture than climate change. I, I think it's a disconnect with, um, with between uh, a disconnect between cause and environmental consequence. So, you know, I, I think that predates the climate crisis and the climate crisis would be, you know, the number one example of that in the, the given moment is, you know, living literally on, on borrowed time in terms of the, the fossil fuels that we're using. Um, and the fact that we can, you know, grasp the, the consequences on one level in terms of we're heating the planet and it's going to cut, you know, it's causing problems for people today and it's really going to cause problems for people who, who aren't alive yet. Um, but, uh, Yeah, going back to storytelling, uh, I think stories help bring those extremely large, hard to grasp top you know concepts into the medium realm of of human emotional understanding that it actually inspires people to change. Yeah, and what are you energized or excited about moving forward? I am excited for spring because. I am a new homeowner and I am about to plant uh, a whole slew of native plants that um, have been sitting in pots all year. And so, you know, just waiting for that next, waiting for that next growing season. And this last one is sort of a two part question that you can approach however you want. Um, what is the best advice you've ever been given? And or what advice do you have for our listeners? Best advice that I've been given. I think one of the challenges I had was a, a lack of mentors, especially in my formative you know, experiences. So I, I wasn't given a whole lot of advice per se, but um, I think I learned from my role models actions that there's no harm in asking. Um, you know, if, if you're curious about something, just ask the question. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what, that's like, I, why I love this show so much is I just get to be curious, right? I invite people on that are incredible and I just get to sit here and be like, what do I want to know? <laughs> it's fun to ask people questions as long as you can get over that, like intim intimidating or the nerves, uh, that factor because definitely have felt that before too. So it's not easy, but ask questions. <laughs> yes. I, I think I can actually pinpoint it at least to some degree to just like, it's probably, I, you know, intro to a cultural anthropology class in college where the, the professor talked about how you learn things as an, an anthropologist just by being present and making mistakes. Um, the example he used was he he was out in um, in a jungle somewhere, and he pricked his hand on a on a thorn, and it started bleeding. So he, he sucked the blood off off his off his finger. Um, and the 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 people in the community he was um, working with uh, were horrified that he'd done this, and that's how he learned that there was a taboo against. Uh, blood in this in this culture. Yeah, right? Mistakes. Don't be afraid of those either. 
ask questions and make mistakes. It's okay. We're humans and human, the human experience is messy. (laughs) Well, Will, (laughs) I feel like that's fun to say. Well, Will, um, (laughs) <laughs> I, th- I think the other lesson from that is that you have to bleed sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And that that guy was a vampire. <laughs> um, I'm so glad we did this and I'm so grateful for you for joining me and just for being a great friend. I'm looking forward to the next time that we can see each other in person and, um, I cannot believe that we did not talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> at all during this podcast. <laughs> that the, is, um, that's the second hour. That's either. Yeah, I know. That's either like a huge feat or a huge failure. I'm not entirely sure which one <laughs> where I land yet. <laughs> yeah. That's the second hour surprise listeners. This is actually like a two and a half hour episode. And the second half is just about our favorite Arnold movies in order. <laughs> Um, well thank you so much for joining me today I appreciate you I appreciate you too thank you so much I would also like to thank the listeners if you like what you heard and want to hear more shows like this one um, or this show you can find us at the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts subscribes rates and reviews are very much welcome and appreciated and if you enjoy social media you can connect with us on twitter and instagram at coastal news 365 and on facebook we are the american shoreline podcast network and if you'd like to connect with me personally i am at yena bena on twitter and at jenna valente on instagram Um, I also should note that I recently started a Twitter account for the Sea Change podcast, so you can find uh, this show there also. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. Mm -hmm.